This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to the show. Once again, and as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Daniel Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is Julian K. Jarbo, a writer and sound designer from Massachusetts. Their debut collection, Everyone on the Moon is Essential Personnel, is forthcoming next spring. They can be found on Twitter at Julian K. Jarbo. Julian, hi. Hi, Danny. How you doing? I'm doing great. Just sitting over there inventing all sorts of things. Yes, I invented gay culture. Thank you, by the way. Just as a side note. That was a huge... We all appreciated it. Yes. That was very kind of you. No problem. Thank you. Um, Thank you so much for... I know you didn't just fly out here to be on the show, but I choose to believe that you did. Let's pretend I did, because it makes me sound glamorous. Yeah, and um, I'm also really excited about your debut collection. I am too. Uh, Just like, I love that phrase so much. Um, Thank you. Did you you ever see uh, Shadow of the Vampire? No, I didn't. It was a movie about the filming of Nosferatu. <gasps> I uh, should see that. And it stars uh, John Malkovich as, I believe, F.W. Murnau. All right, I'm interested. And at one point, he is arguing with Willem Dafoe, um, who plays the guy who played Nosferatu, whose name escapes me right now. Um, and they're negotiating about how many members of the crew he's allowed to eat, because the, the conceit is that he is, in fact, a real vampire, and that's right. why they've cast him. Right. Um, and at one point, John Malkovich just snap. John Malkovich, rather, just snaps. Uh, the script girl is essential. All of my people are necessary. Um, and that's like the phrase and the tone that I picture when I read uh, the title of your collection. I That is an extremely good uh, like tonal comparison to bring into your expectations. Um, uh, depressing in a funny way is kind of my thing. Great. Great, great, great. I also think before you leave, we're going to have to watch Shadow of the Vampire together. That seems completely fine. You know, as you know, I'm always looking for different ways to avoid working on my book. Uh, so... I'm not going to say, Danny, work on your book until at least tomorrow. All right. Fair enough. Thank you. So if I did say that, Mm -hmm. it would only be as a hypothetical example for something I'm scheduling. I don't require you to be insolent at present. I require you to help me do my other job. All right. We're helping humanity. That's right. Leave aside your questions and quandaries and focus on the problems of the rest of the world. I'm going to put on my Ernestine hat. Please do. Um, I love that you have handwritten notes for these questions because I think... They are that level of complicated. They are. They are. Shall we? Yes, let's shout. Uh, I'll take our first letter. Okay. Because I just let our last guest read the first one, and I want to keep things fresh and exciting. Okie dokie. How's your microphone treating you? I'm just raising it a little bit. Just moving it around? Just getting it right there. Mm -hmm. Great. Go ahead. So the subject is not ready to be an auntie. Dear Prudence, my wife and I have been married for seven years. Five years ago, she came out as trans and transitioned both socially and medically. Her sister and mom, being rather close-minded people from a small town, were horribly offended by this and drastically cut back on the amount of time they spent with her, specifically to shield her sister's young children from us. Two years ago, we found out that my wife's mom had passed away from breast cancer on social media. My wife didn't want to go to the funeral, as she said it would bring up too many painful topics, and she didn't want to deal with it. We sat it out and visited the cemetery about a month later. Now, apparently, my sister-in-law has also died from an overdose, and we are those kids' closest living relatives. 
we got a call from a cousin who lived nearby and said that the kids were staying at her house and that we needed to pick them up soon or she would, quote, send them to social services. Prudy, how do we parent two kids we haven't seen in years in a city they're unfamiliar with after just going through two giant traumas? We'd always talked about adopting, and we have the space and income to support them, but this is going to be a huge lifestyle change for everyone, and I'm not even sure how to start. From pictures that we've seen on social media, they look like nice kids. They're a seven-year-old boy and a 10-year-old girl. We don't know what they must think about their queer and trans aunts that they've never met. Have they been told all the awful, evil stereotypes their mother and grandmother used to say about my wife? We're moving them in next weekend. How the hell do we prepare for this? I have two simultaneous thoughts. Mm -hmm. The first is, oh my God, I feel for you on every level. Um, You are probably experiencing a really complicated grief uh, and a really complicated panic where you've lost two people who were not nice to you and you're presumably gaining two people who have never had a chance to be anything to you. And that's that's a lot. Um there's there's one crucial piece of information from this letter that I feel like would really, really affect the direction of what I would say. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, I see that you're in contact with your family over social media, but uh, one does not simply drop off children at so- social services like, like willy-nilly, like it's the pound. I, I'm really unclear as to whether or not you're picking them up to take them in because this cousin has given you an ultimatum or whether you are named as legally responsible for these children. Yeah. Um, Learning that grandma has passed like way after everybody else or something like that doesn't lead me to believe that like uh, an estate was settled. Mm -hmm. Right. And Mm -hmm. so I have serious questions about um, who is actually legally responsible for these children. Yeah, that's, I think, the most salient point at this point. So would you say their best next move as a couple is to consult a lawyer or is it to check in with other family members to try to find out? What, if anything, the will may have said? Both? Yeah. 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 Um, uh, and it's possible that, um, you know, the family didn't have anything, mm-hmm. right? It, it's entirely possible that there's no guardian named in any document anywhere. Mm-hmm. But I'm willing to bet if either of these kids' parents at any point um, was employed, that they were probably required to list dependents and, and explain something somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, maybe they don't, right? That's entirely possible. And uh, things could vary by whatever state that you're in. Um, I'm not a lawyer, but um, I smell something fishy here. Mm-hmm. If these cousins were available to take these kids in, then they were clearly more socially involved in the situation. Mm-hmm. And I'm... Uh, I'm wondering, like, are they actually legally responsible for these children and trying to stiff you with it? Like, what's going on here? Right. Because, again, it's clear to me that that you and your wife are both open to and and maybe even want to um, uh, adopt or, or, or at least put yourself on the path towards being able to adopt the kids. So I don't want to say, like, hey, if you don't have any legal responsibilities, just tell them to fuck off. Goodness, no, I'm not saying that either. But um, I, I do worry, essentially, that right now you're being used as, like, a dumping ground and that later yes. they might decide to come back and say, we don't, you don't actually have any legal right to take care of these children and, and we want to fight you for custody. Mm-hmm. That's so, what I'm worried about, yeah. too. So yeah. I am not trying to say find, your, find a way to wriggle out of this. I'm saying for the protection of your heart, which has been broken so many times, mm-hmm. um, it, 
it may be the case that this is the way you have a family and it wasn't what you planned on mm-hmm. and this is how it goes. And in which case, you know, I wish you all the social resources in the world. And hopefully um, you have built up a chosen family mm-hmm. of your own that can help you with this. Um, but protect yourself yeah. um, and protect these children. Yeah. If you want to love them, if you want to, you know, best case scenario, create like a wonderful bond with these kids who might have been raised to hate you and now are going to maybe even begrudgingly tolerate to love you mm-hmm. as parents, like you have to set yourself up legally. Yeah. As well as, you know, financially and logistically. Yeah. So I would say lawyer first. Lawyer first. Over over anything. And, you know, I don't know if the kids have a living biological father or if anybody on the dad's side of the family um, has any interest in getting involved too. But again, that's just a good question to to ask of a lawyer. Um, and, and also to maybe see if they want to visit the kids, if they want to come say hi. Like, I, I don't know how antagonistic that relationship is or if there's a relationship at all. I know you say that you're the kid's closest living relative, so it, it may just be that they never had a father in the picture. But right. um, it, you'll definitely want to get that sorted out. I do think, so assuming you you talk to a lawyer and you have at least some grounds to start um, taking custody of the kids and that would maybe establish like a better legal foundation for seeking like legal custody, you know, go ahead and move forward with that. Like if the plan right now is like it's it's we take in the kids or they get, you know, packed off to foster care. I understand wanting to move them in regardless, but ask those questions first. And then I think also set up therapy appointments for the whole family, right? Right. The yeah. whole family. I, no. and by which I mean you and your wife and the kids, right. not, not the extended uh, relatives. You and your wife, even if you have a perfect relationship right now, should be in couples therapy yeah. because of what it will do to your relationship. And you should be having conversations with other children present. Mm-hmm. If you can, if you can swing it. Yeah. Um, and additionally, the whole whole fam family should definitely be talking to somebody together. Yeah. And I do want to clarify that like um children can be in social services and also live with you. Yeah. I think this is like um I guess I guess that's the the like kind of little orange flag in this for me is this idea that like we're going to send them off to like orphans house in yeah. Victorian Dickensian England and it's it's kind of like no no they, they may enter the foster system and you may become their foster parents mm-hmm. like there are many complex possibilities here yeah um so I do just want to put that out there um as well yeah. uh and you don't you're not alone yeah um um in in many cases people have been very hurt um by abuses of state systems and um that sort of thing has happened to my family so I don't think the fear is unfounded, but um, it's it doesn't have to be this like either we get it together right. or or the police are taking our kids away. Like right. you can also reach out and find ways that um, these support systems can serve you as support. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I don't know what state you're in and that might vary right. considerably. But I think too then to that end, it's also a good idea to maybe uh, try to find out get in contact with like your local human services agency and find out what resources may be available to you as like temporary foster parents um, looking to become legal guardians. Um, So all that being said, lining up those appointments, um, 
making sure that you have as many of your friends who are able to like maybe come by and drop off meals sometimes or like help you with laundry or or, or friends of yours who are parents who know like yes, yes. what a kid's need. Um, having kind of um, an open mind and low expectations when the kids show up. I, I do think the good thing is at seven and ten, even if they're their you know mother and grandmother have said lots of horrible things uh, about you to them that's young enough that i think given time and 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 you know both affection and like a little bit of a distance in the sense of like we're not going to try to force you to love us or anything we just want you mm-hmm. to be well and mm-hmm. we're so glad that you're here and we care about you mm-hmm. um it, it, it's not necessarily going to be as set in stone as if they were like teenagers showing up and mm-hmm. um although so what's the part of the letter that asks about um the kids are in school and this letter writer and her wife are in a different town, different school system. Is that part of the problem? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's unclear to me. Um, you know, they were able to visit um, her wife's uh, mother's cemetery. So it could be it doesn't sound like they're in the same small town. Right. But it sounds like they're relatively close. But, yeah, that's another thing to consider is like, will the kids be also taken out of their school? Mm-hmm. Um if there's, would you recommend trying to see if there was a way to keep that consistent, or do you think that that would just be too difficult? Or, I think it really depends on the kids. Mm-hmm. I, um, you know, they're also grieving, right? Yeah. And uh, grief is is so hard for adults. For yeah. kids, it can be like, you know, they can do it all kinds of ways, you know, mm-hmm. and and maybe they seem fine. I'm making air quotes that you can't see. Yeah, and maybe they're, you know. Also, you know, exhibiting all kinds of kid-appropriate weird behaviors, which even putting bigotry aside, like, let's say these kids are perfectly accepting and have no problems with you and your wife. Um, I think it's worth mentioning that kids in grief can be mean. Yeah. And uh, to prepare yourself for that possibility as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you've ever cared for uh, a friend or a loved one who was a little out of control of their... Uh, words and deeds um again definitely please see a therapist as a couple as well yeah um to to, to be prepared to to maybe be rejected quite aggressively um mm-hmm. sometimes in surprising ways yeah kids aren't always like you're not my real mom so bye like they can they can be like totally cool about the day-to-day stuff and then just like you know, one day you find they've like low key vandalized the thing that you, they know you like. Like it's yeah, it can be weird. Yeah. Um, so like, I don't want you to get your heart broken again and again and again. Yeah. I want I I so badly want this family to find the silver lining in this terrible sequence of events and like just like support each other and love each other and like wow, this is how you end up with your kids and yeah. like that's I want that so badly for you and I'm. Sorry if I'm dogpiling on all these logistics, but no, I that's, think that's the way really that helpful. I react to crisis. Yeah. No, I think that's really necessary and helpful. And so I think in addition to like lining up the visits with the therapist and the lawyers to so just call in your own support system, um, let your friends know that to whatever extent they can come around and help over the next couple of weeks and months and and in the longer term, but just like especially like we're about to head into potentially crisis mode um, and we want a lot of support and time and for both of you to kind of have a little time during the day or even just like at night when the kids go to bed where the two of you can just kind of check in with one another and say like, how are you feeling today? Mm -hmm. How are we going to get through tomorrow? Um, How can we just enjoy this five minutes of peace before it all starts up again Mm -hmm. um, and, and be there for one another and, you know, my hope would be that 
you all would be able to find ways to connect and to develop your own kind of family relationship slowly but meaningfully. Yes. Um, and and for you to be sure that you had a legal right to these kids. Take it take it slow. Um, I can say in my experience, um, a, a trap that I fall into, and again, I'm not saying you're going to do this. A trap that I have fallen into and would would like to share is um, uh, wanting the love of the child or significant other or something of somebody who's rejected you as a surrogate for getting that person's love right. is a mental trap that is so easy to fall into. Yep. Which is why I was flagging the like kids might be mean, even if even if all of the, you know, acceptance or rejection of of LGBT people is is like totally in the clear. Like, how, will it will it feel like rejection from the sister and the mother all over again the right. first time there's a big blow up? Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And so I think to prepare yourself as best you can of like these are little kids who are going through some unimaginable pain. And if they say or do things that are like just lashing out, we need to be able to be able to kind of like lovingly absorb that mm -hmm. and then find times uh, where when we are not in active parenting mode where we can mm -hmm. like break down a little if we need to cry about it, if we need to work through some of our fears and anxieties yeah. with other adults. Um, and again, like I'm not trying to project my issues onto this poor letter writer. Sure. Just a thing that right. I, I think about, you know, um, one of the things you might want to think about is that because these people who've hurt you are dead and that's complicated, but those people can't hurt you anymore. Yeah, yeah. And 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 you get to be the adult now. You get to be a better model than that. You get to, yeah, you get to do better. Yeah, and and good luck. Please, Please write good back luck. in a couple of months and let us know how you guys are all doing. I'm so worried about you. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I hope it's like the best case scenario. And and I hope that things just go really, really well. Um, and But even that is going to involve a lot of adjustment, a lot of change, a lot of hard work. And um, I, I think what you're doing is loving and open-hearted. And I'm glad that you're available for these kids. And I'm just sorry for what all of you have been through at the hands of the rest of your family. So we have a nice, easy, simple, garden variety, dump your boyfriend question. Yeah. Um... Or rather, just don't. Do what you're contemplating doing with your boyfriend next is maybe a better way of putting we it. We haven't even read the letter and we've already answered it. Uh, would you please read the letter and then we can decide. Oh, I, I may. Subject, I want to propose to my boyfriend. Dear Prudence, a few months ago my partner admitted he had been actively seeking other sexual partners for the majority of our two-year-long relationship. He has truly taken full responsibility and we are having continued conversations. We have also both started individual therapy and will be starting couples counseling soon. As context, we live in a global South nation that was recently hit by a massive terrorist attack. The next day he came to my place and he got a call that another attack had happened near his family's place. As we were trying to find him a cab and checking the situation on the streets, I had this overwhelming feeling that I didn't want to ever live without him. I now feel like I want to propose. It seems right, but is it just because we are in a highly emotional situation, surrounded by death and sadness? I will obviously wait a bit, but are traumatic event-induced proposals a thing? I want to be really gentle with this letter writer, because you've clearly gone through a lot lately, and you're feeling really anxious about the future, possibly like your life could be in danger. Um, and, and unsure uh, of your partner's level of commitment to your relationship. Um, but, you know, 
when you ask, like, am, am I just doing this because of panic and trauma? I, I, that's very clear. Yes. 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 Is you the are. answer to that question. That's where this is coming from. It's not coming from a place of, you know, we're in a really solid place. We've really moved past this together. Um, I'm not quite sure what taking full responsibility looks like here. Um, I don't know what that means either. Yeah. I think sometimes people just say that and they kind of want that to be the end of it. Like, I take full responsibility, a little bit like Michael Scott saying, I declare bankruptcy, uh-huh. you know, and then it's just like, great, I took responsibility. You know, part of responsibility, um, part of that would mean, uh, you know, the passage of time mm-hmm. coupled with hard work so that you could see there were ways in which his behavior had clearly changed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, responsibility of a two-year habit of cheating on you can't come in two weeks. Nope. It's impossible. Yeah. There's no situation in which that's going to happen. Um, so, you know, you say that he admitted it to you. That's, again, I don't want to say, like, you have to break up with him if you don't want to. You don't have to do anything. Um, but... I really think um, this desire you have to propose right now is a desire to say, I want to control that neither of us will die unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. I want to commit in such a way that we can just re- like relegate the cheating to before we got married. Mm-hmm. I want to feel like we're making a brand new fresh start mm-hmm. um, and, and that this is like a sign that we're committed to one another in a new way. I agree with all of that. Yeah. Um, I also think that Anytime you feel like making a lifelong, presumably, commitment to somebody based only on how you feel about them, mm-hmm. check yourself. Yeah. Uh, loving somebody a lot is an insufficient reason to get married. Yep. Um, how has he been treating you through all these emergencies? Right. You're really worried about him getting blown up, and that's very dramatic and would make a great script, but not a great relationship. Um, what is... You are also living in this place where terrorist attacks are happening. Is he worried about you? Is he worried about you? Yeah. You were you helped him get a cab. Um, what has he done for you? Is he worried about your safety? Is he is he having like kind of a wake up call where he's like, I have this sort of compulsive, you know, cheating thing. I want to stop being that way. Oh, also, the world is really dangerous. I'm having a grown up moment now where I'm really forced to pick. What is he doing? Right. Start to keep a diary of his actions. Do you mean like actually keeping a diary? Because that feels a little like monitoring him. No, 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 not monitoring. Like like to yourself, like, you know, today I felt supported for this explicit reason. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So so sorry if that sounds like kind of kind of. um, I did not mean to sound like to suggest that you should spy on him. That is not my suggestion. But keeping I, I like the idea of keeping a record of like. Um, examples examples so that if you looked back over the last couple of weeks and you were like yeah he's really been there for me and you had to write down some concrete examples and you couldn't find any that might be a a good moment to kind of say okay I want this to be true more than it is true yeah you say you've had some conversations you don't say anything about what the content of them were so I, I I don't really know um I imagine he's apologized I imagine he's said something along the lines of, I care about you and I want to stay with you. I hope so. Um, I don't know what kind of insight he's been able to offer in terms of like, 
why he kept choosing to do that, why he decided to keep it from you, what he was getting out of it, why that suddenly changed for him. Mm -hmm. That would be all stuff that I think would be really important to learn more about. Basically, I think right now you're in individual therapy and you're about to start couples counseling. Make your next commitment that couples counseling. Um, And you can say, I think, in that space, one thing that I'm noticing in myself right now is a lot of fear around these recent attacks. And uh, I I don't want to be without you. That's a feeling that's coming up for me. You can name that feeling. He can know this about you. You can share Mm -hmm. that. You don't have to keep that to yourself. Mm -hmm. But um, sharing it and deciding to impulsively propose to him are not the same thing. Please don't propose to this man, at least not right now. Yeah. Um, I, I, I like I. If you proposed and he said no, that would be awful. If you proposed and he said yes, that would be also bad. Um, and that's not saying you two can't ever make it work. Maybe you can. Um, but y- you'll need at least, I think, a year of a really different kind of a relationship to know, I think I can build a future off of this. Yeah, and good luck. Um, uh, my husband's Nana, who has uh, been through some things, um, and I won't detail what those are, but she um, gave me some relationship advice before I married her grandson, uh, which was that when a crisis happens, and it and it it may, it likely will at some point in your life, um, and married life, if it's for the rest of your life, will hopefully and presumably be very long. Um, a couple, at least, and maybe a family, and you know, uh, of more than two, and any other kind of group, kind of in the loosest sense, can choose to grow together or grow apart through crisis. And growing together requires both parties to really be actively participating in that growth together. And so I really hope that this scary stuff gives him the tap on the wrist that makes him say, like, I'm doing things that are destructive to people that I love. And he grows up and you two have a great... uh, couple of years where you figure out where your future goes. Yeah. And maybe at the end of that, you will get married. Yeah. But really bring your whole self to this couple's counseling thing. Um, don't let what you want to be true keep you from seeing what is. Um, That's and, what I meant by yeah. keeping a diary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the like cognitive behavioral therapy totally, check. Totally. Not, yeah, yeah, not yeah. read all his texts. Not Please like so that, that you can bring something to HR and no, say, No, no, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm so, yeah I no, apologize I get, for yeah. the way that I sometimes word things. Totally. No, no, no. It makes so much sense. Um, yeah. And and really, you know, if, if what he brings to couples counseling is just kind of generalities and I'm sorry and I won't do it again and I don't really know why I did it. There's probably no reason, but I won't. And now I want you to back off. That is a sign that you should consider um, – whether or not you deserve to be treated better in a relationship. And sometimes you can love someone very much and also realize I don't think they're going to treat me the way that I need to be treated. And I have to choose my well-being over what I wish happened. Um, And that's really, really hard because you love this guy and you clearly feel like you're losing your grip on him. And I get that. But trying to hold more tightly to him, if he's not actually trustworthy, honorable, and as in love with you as you are with him, the harder you try to hang on to him the more he's going to just slip through your fingers which i'm pretty sure is a line from like some sort of like game of thrones or lord of the rings thing like the more you try to squeeze us the more cities will slip through your fingers you're looking at me like i have grown an extra head i don't know what movie that's from but maybe at least five movies yeah it's from a lot of movies several movies yeah um and good luck again Keep us posted. I would love to hear about uh, how this one shakes out. And stay safe. Yeah, take care of yourself. Look out for yourself. 
Um, subject of this next one is just masturbation. Dear Prudence, perhaps you can help resolve a long-standing disagreement between me and my husband. We've been married for about 10 years and have never agreed on the subject of masturbation. I think it's perfectly fine, healthy, and natural, and he views it as sinful and akin to infidelity. He was raised in a very Christian home in West Africa, so religion and culture and race are all strong presences in our home that we frequently contend with. Before getting married, I was open with him about my views on masturbation, and he knew that I owned a vibrator. He did not share with me his strong views and opposition until after we were married. I can't fathom why he didn't tell me beforehand, but here we are. We rarely discuss it, but he knows I still own a vibrator, and I know it's a sore spot for him. I rarely use it, but I consider it a fundamental right of mine. Whenever it comes up, he suggests that since I think it's my right to masturbate, he thinks it's his right to sleep with other people. I respond that those are completely different things, and I don't believe he would ever carry it out. I think he only says that to get a rise out of me. For what it's worth, we still have a good sex life, at least two to three times a week, if not more, after 10 years of marriage. He definitely 100% does not masturbate, so at least I can say he's not being hypocritical. He's asked around and understands that it's normal in parts of American culture, but he still doesn't seem at peace about it. What do you say? I mean, I'm not your husband, um, so it sort of doesn't matter what I think. Uh, like, I can agree with you till the cows come home, but it's not going to change the fundamental conflict here. I would say maybe you should believe your husband when he says, I consider this license for me to sleep with other people. You know, we've just had a letter about how often people um, do it. And um, I generally speaking, I, I don't think that that means he's seeing somebody else on the side, but like. I don't think you should say, I know you don't mean that. Like generally speaking, when people say stuff, I think I know you don't mean that is not a good response because often people do mean what they say. Um, so I, I think the more important question here, rather than just like continuing with this detente is like, hey, when well, we've talked about this before, I really didn't want to think that you would say that this is like a violation of our marriage vows and that you would use it as grounds to sleep with other people. Um, can you tell me if my reading of that is off? Like. Um, do you want to sleep with other people? Is that important to you? Do you want to do it to punish me? Do you want to do it so that we feel like we're on more of an equal footing? What are your thoughts here? Tell me more. Dear husband, are, did you not tell me about these views because you don't actually sincerely hold them and they became a convenient thing that you could drag out of your upbringing once you got bored with me, even though you're having sex with me all these Many times, 10 years later, like, perhaps you want something on the side and you found a really interesting rhetorical trick to get me to admit it. Oh, that's really good. Mm, yeah. Interesting that yeah. he didn't mention it before they were married. Yeah. So, you know, ask those questions. Let there be some uncomfortable silences. Don't try to answer that question. Like, don't try to finish any of your husband's sentences when he's doing this. Let him explain himself. And, you know you may get some really interesting information out of that conversation. I can certainly understand at this point if part of you feels like I'd rather just not believe him when he says that and I'd rather just sort of keep occasionally privately masturbating and only occasionally having tense moments and I don't want to know if there's more to know. People often decide they don't want to know more about something in a marriage that is otherwise very good and has lasted a long time and where they have a good sex life. If that is the road that you decide to go down, I don't think that that means you're hiding your head in the sand or um, foolishly ignoring like a number of huge red flags. But it's certainly a it's an orange flag, at least, I think. It's a flag. There's a flag on the field. 
It's mm-hmm. curious. I would want to know more. I, I don't think that if this were my marriage, I would be able to say, I'm just going to say that we agree to disagree here and keep this thing real hidden and just hope we don't fight about it. Um, that 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 whole, I didn't mention it until after we got married and I think it's licensed for me to cheat. I, I would want to ask real specific sounds questions. Sounds suspicious, yeah. yeah. Sounds like your husband would like to cheat on you. Not to judge, but it sounds like your husband is hiding something. Um, and uh, even if he's not cheating on you, uh, I don't know. Um, he's trying to control you mm-hmm. <laughs> straight up. Yeah. And has uh, kind of hyperbole or not, like he uses threats to get you to have a sexuality that he's comfortable with. Mm-hmm. He's allowed to be uncomfortable. He's not allowed to tell you what to do like that. Right. It would be one thing if it was like, it's a sore spot. And so we kind of just try not to talk about it. Lots of marriages have moments like that. Mm -hmm. But the whole, you know, saving it until after we're married and now it means I get to cheat on you is just like, ooh, that's a bad one-two combination. Mm -hmm. So ask those questions. Wait a while. Take him at his word when he says, actually, I meant every word of it. And if you decide that that um, is a significant enough uh, revelation from your husband that it gets weighted against the otherwise good sex life in the 10 years of marriage where you're like, I want to actually really hash this out, possibly temporarily separate, possibly see a couple's counselor, you know, any number of other things. I think those could all be on the table too. But, you know, you don't, um, I don't think you can just assume that he didn't mean it when he said that. Mm -hmm. I think that's the key there. Because, you know, it's kind of like the last letter where it's like, I don't want to believe that my husband would do that to me, even though I either know that he did or he has said that he would. Mm-hmm. It, you know, extremely Oprah voice when people tell you who they are, believe them. Um, Oprah said that. I'm going to stop trying did to Oprah do... Did Oprah say that? Yeah, famously. Famously. I didn't know she was the one who said that. Famously. Is it one of those things I mean, that I maybe don't... someone else said, but it gets attributed to Oprah? Hang on a second. Kind of like how everything... Winston Churchill said like it wasn't yeah I mean but uh, unlike Winston Churchill like Oprah is alive now and like we can verify it yeah um, let's find out hang on I insist I yeah I in my mind I'm like of course Oprah said it Um, the first first result that comes up claims it's Maya Angelou Mm. Uh, there is a video of Oprah saying it uh, quoting Maya Angelou so um, I'm half wrong Oprah apparently said it Via Maya Angelou. I'm wrong. Let's just go ahead and say I'm wrong. Oprah repeated it. And Oprah is <laughs> famous. <laughs> Therefore, she said it. Uh, I would like to apologize for going out on a limb on that one before I Googled. <laughs> Anyways, people often, at least that I know, often say like Oprah voice when people tell you who they are. So I associate it with Oprah. Good luck, letter writer. Yeah, good luck. Um, this next one is... I love this next one. I love this I love it. I love it. Do you want me to read it? Do you want to read it? Uh, I forget if I read the last one or not. I think you should read it. Okay. Subject, Dead Uncle's Porn. Dear Prudence, A relative recently passed away who was unmarried and had no children, so getting their affairs in order fell to me. I went to the home and was surprised to find an extensive porn collection. I'm not talking about a couple of dirty mags under the bed, although there were some under the bed, too. This collection rivaled any adult bookstore you've ever seen. If there were more than one of the same video, I would have thought they were a porn distributor because it's that much. My question is, what should I do with it all? 
He obviously put a lot of time, work, and money into this collection. If it had been a toy collection, everyone would be of the mind that I should sell it. My sisters think I should throw it all away, but it feels wrong somehow, like I'm throwing away pieces of their identity since this obviously meant a lot to them. I think it's silly that because of the nature of the hobby they had that we have to be weirded out or ashamed. Realistically, I get that humans are squeamish around porn. I'm not stupid. I haven't told anyone else but my sisters because I understand the stigma that this could leave in their memory. Should I go ahead and just throw it away? Can I donate it? So without getting into, like, um, judging people for having a porn collection or viewing porn, even a lot of porn, I would like to um, complicate the idea that you seem to think is self-evident, which is that if your uncle had a lot of sex toys, everyone would say, oh, just sell it. A lot of people don't want secondhand sex toys. There's, I think the letter writer means, like, action figures. Oh. But in context, it sure sounds different, doesn't oh, it? Oh, oh, okay. That does make more sense because I thought they were like, <laughs> obviously, if it was just a ton of dildos, everyone would be like, get that sweet, sweet secondhand dildo money. And I was like, it's kind of like, you know, you can buy a lot of used clothes. You can rarely buy used underwear unless, again, you're like buying it in the like fetish sense. Um, but like you can't just go down to Goodwill and be like, how many underwears do you have? Because they usually won't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that makes a ton more sense. Thank you. I'm so glad you're on the show today. <laughs> Fixing my quote attributions, encouraging me to double check whether or not someone means dildos or like uh, Boba Fett action figures. Maybe both. Maybe I don't both. know your family. Yeah. Letter writer. Um, so it's not a toy collection. I don't think you have to worry too much about that. Um, I think my question would be like, because there are plenty of like, um, like sex and erotica museums that might have like... Um, rare or culturally significant um, pornography on display, especially if it was pornography that had anything to do with like censorship laws or like big moments in history or like queer history. So if he had like rare Tijuana Bibles, that would maybe be interesting. That's what I was going to say. Does he have good pulp? You know, it doesn't say like, look, if it's like really campy vintage gay porn, Mm -hmm. keep it. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. But if it's just like old penthouse magazines that like everyone's uncle left behind when he died, um, I don't know how much of a market there's going to be for that. So use your judgment there. If any of it seems like unique or interesting or historically meaningful, um, maybe do a little research and find out if there are any like archives or museums within the state that would potentially want to take a look at some of them. If it's pretty like generic, sort of the most mainstream stuff that people could have gotten their hands on, I don't know how... Uh, much value there's going to be. Yeah, the nature of the porn is everything. Um, I have so many questions. I wish I could see an example. I say that sincerely with a straight oh, of face. Course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, um, you know, maybe somewhere in there is like cool, some cool art. Yeah. And maybe even some of it you'll get a chuckle out of and be like, this is campy. I'm going to keep this one centerfold and like, put some smiley face stickers over the the nips and put it in my guest bathroom. Like, do whatever you want. Yeah. But I, I think generally speaking, uh, part of the thing that's just coming up is like, my uncle, you know, was unmarried, didn't have kids. And part of me feels responsible for his legacy. Right. And like, this thing obviously was important to him. And he spent a lot of time collecting it. And now if I throw it away, it'll just be like, it didn't matter. Um, and, and that's always the hard thing when somebody dies is a lot of the stuff that they really cared about does not have intrinsic value to other people. Mm-hmm. And so it can be really painful to say, like, there it goes. And that's one of the things that's really hard about death. 
um, is that a lot of things lose their significance and their resonance if there's not somebody else who shared that connection or that memory or that interest. Um, Look, my aunt died a few years ago, letter writer. And um, <laughs> uh, yes, I've been out for a really long time, but all the all, all the girl stuff went to me mm-hmm. for reasons. Um, so I had all of a sudden like a closet full of uh, glamorous women's clothing that um, ended up with me mm-hmm. uh, because of things. And you know what? I I went through it. I found a few things that I knew friends would really love. Um, and I gave those personally to some friends. And then I donated the rest. Yeah. And that that's not how I feel about my aunt. Right. It just... It was not going to be used if you kept it. It was not going to be used. And I don't love animal print that much. Yeah. It's fine. Recently, um, my mom and Grace and I got together. Um, and my mom had a number of years ago seen this like Edwardian style painting of a woman getting ready on her wedding day. Um, and the woman looked a little bit like how I used to look. And my mom had said that she had bought it when I was much, much younger. And, um, when I had started transitioning, she had kind of thought about like, is the right thing to just keep it for myself? Should I pass it along to somebody else? What should I kind of do with this? And she'd been very thoughtful about it. Like she hadn't mentioned it to me because she didn't want to, um, make me feel sad about it. But she was like, you know, when, when you and Grace got engaged, I realized I got this for Grace. Um, and she gave it to, to Grace and it was a really like moving and lovely moment. And it just felt like, um, a really, really lovely moment where we can kind of share in this, like, um, you know, dreams and hopes and, and desires for the future can really change and shift and you can often make room for them in new ways. And um, it was a really beautiful moment. Um, and yeah. I'm so glad that we get to have it hanging up in the house. And, and with an entire house full of your uncle's porn. <laughs> yeah, probably. You can do a lot. You yeah. don't have to donate it, uh, strictly speaking. Um, you can recycle it. You yeah. don't have to throw it away either. Yeah. Uh, yeah I I'm picturing like all these VHS tapes, you know, totally. you didn't say VHS tapes anywhere, but I'm picturing but it. They did say video, I think. Video. Yeah. yeah. You can donate it. I will say from personal experience, Go on. if there's an art school mm-hmm. near where you live, letter writer, <laughs> um, some uh, goofy 21 year old film video major or something, it might genuinely be interested in these, you yeah. know, Uh have fun with it. Have yeah. a good time. Yeah. So I would say uh, within reason, like investigate whether or not there are any like archives or museums that might be interested in some of it. Um, consider if there are art schools nearby that could have any use. And I would say maybe go through official channels and say, like, I realize this is a weird offer, but I have like a collection that I would be happy to donate rather than like buttonholing random art students and say, like, want some of my dead uncle's porn? I, I certainly don't do it, like, with the open trench coat, yeah. although that would be strangely yeah. appropriate. If you, have, you know what I mean, though? Right? Yeah, oh, totally. If you have, like, um, ways of doing it that you felt like could honor your uncle's privacy, you might do, like, a limited, like, social media post of, like, hey, I have come into possession of this collection. If anyone is interested in parts of it, please message me and I can send it to you. Um, but it, you know, if, if I, for whatever reason, if you're like, I can't do that without kind of like making it clear that it's my uncle and I don't want to do that to the rest of the family. Uh-huh. Um, and if it's not, if no, if the art schools are just like, no, thank you. We're fine. Um, and if no museums find it interesting, it is okay to just say he got the joy and the use and the vitality out of them while he lived. <laughs> he lived his best life, I guess. He lived his best life. And like, I, I you know, I get it. Like, cause part of like 
the joy of like sex or, or masturbation is like there's energy to it. There's vitality to it. It's like without sounding like a total hippie, like it's it's part you of being sound alive. like a huge hippie right now. But that time for him is done. And and if that means that a lot of this needs to get recycled or thrown away, it doesn't mean that it um, was meaningless. It just means that it served its purpose. Um, you're and, not throwing your uncle away. Yeah. I promise you you're not. And you are totally allowed to do some weird ritual when you totally. recycle these valueless VHS tapes of college co-eds in the back door, volume four through 18. Yeah. You know, put it in the bin and um, pour one out. Yeah. Maybe like... If, if it feels okay, like you can take it to like uh, the the local like dump, but you can also like bin them carefully and and kind of have a moment or take a moment and say something loving about your uncle in that moment. It doesn't have to be. I think sometimes we think throwing things away means like acting with contempt or saying like get out of here, you fucking garbage. But you can I think throw things away respectfully and with love. Mm-hmm. And one last note, mm-hmm. please wear gloves when you're going through these things. I don't know. What do you think? There's going to be like some old. Yes. All right. Fair enough. Fine. Wear gloves. That sounds. That doesn't. I don't think there's a real health risk of like touching old porn VHSs. Don't you though? From a from a long dead man, like how long is there anything like alive in sperm after it's oh been oh nothing like, nothing like you know like health hazardous just like you know like for your own comfort you may want to start peeling through the sticky magazines. With like some, it's just some rubber gloves. I would say wear gloves at your own comfort level. Letter oh my writer, god, fine. you don't have to do whatever you want. Yeah, who am I? Just you know. a germaphobe over here. Yeah, I mean, whatever. I look. I wash my hands. I I live a relatively clean life. I just sometimes, you know, don't think we need to wear gloves. I moved into a house in Boston years ago where um, I inherited uh, previous tenants' uh, porn collection. So that is me. You speak from experience. I speak from, and I can only speak for myself. <laughs> let let it not be said that I am ever telling anyone what to do. Fair enough. No, we would never dare. Of course not. Goodness. All right. So, well, now we really have to tell someone what to do because this next one is a little higher stakes than um, what we just handled. But the subject is screaming friend. Dear Prudence, my relationship with Debbie goes back many years and I value her friendship. I know her very well. She has a good heart and is very generous with her time and energy. Our kids are the same age and we often meet up for play dates, but she yells at her kids in a way that I think is inappropriate. Recently, my kids and I met up with her family in public and she screamed so loudly at one of her kids who was doing typical little kid misbehavior that the room went totally silent and everyone stared at us. Later that day, when I asked my kids if they'd had fun, they said they liked playing with their friends but were scared when Debbie yelled. I dug a little deeper, and they confessed that they don't like going to Debbie's house or spending time with their family because they're afraid of her. When I think about it, I don't think there's ever been a time when I was around her family and she didn't scream at her kids. My mother screamed at me in much the same way, and it ruined my relationship with her. I was frightened of my mom and never came to her for help with problems for fear of her yelling and wrath. I love Debbie, and despite her yelling, I know she has a good heart and loves her kids. If my kids are scared to be around her, am I right in believing I should drastically scale back the time we spend with her family? And what, if anything, should I say to Debbie about why we're scaling back and the effects that her screaming may have on her kids? Uh, yes, and that. That's mm-hmm. what you should tell her. Yeah. You should say, you're scaring my kids. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of bending over backwards in this letter to say, like, mm-hmm. she's not a bad person. I've seen her be great in a lot of other ways. Mm-hmm. And I just want to be clear um, – I both believe you, letter writer, and it just doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. To those little kids who are, like, living in terror of their mother, if somebody else said, well, she always helps me move, 
or she has a lot of energy when we get together to see a movie or whatever, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. It, it is not like um, good behavior doesn't work that way. Like if you scream at your kids and terrorize them, but you're really, really great as like a volunteer coordinator, they don't cancel each other out. One doesn't uh, work like that. And I understand that part of why you're saying that is like she is not a wholly bad person. Again, I get that. You don't have to say I think she is an unrepentant monster who should be like consigned to the flames of Gehenna. She is verbally abusive, however. But she's verbally abusing her children. Mm-hmm. Um, and she does it all the time. And you firsthand know how damaging that is. Mm -hmm. Um, So don't, you know, I think when you say this to Debbie, don't couch it too much in like, I know you're a good person. Don't. That's not the question here. The question here is, are you going to stop emotionally abusing your kids? Or verbally, rather. Um, Both. Yeah. Sounds like. And and maybe emotionally abusing literators' kids. Let's be real. Yeah. So I, I, I think... Maybe the fact that this has brought up some trauma you yourself have experienced that you have felt reluctant to say anything to her because maybe you're afraid she's going to turn it on you. Right. So I, I want to um, I encourage you to talk about this. If you have a partner, to talk about it with your partner. If you don't, with a friend who doesn't yell at children and just say, I'm going to talk to Debbie about this. I'm scared. I need some support. I need some backup. Can you help me plan through what I want to say or like make plans to meet up with me afterwards in case I need a little just like help decompressing? Mm-hmm. I want you to ask for that. If you can afford it, see a therapist because man oh man if you have to confront a friend about the way that they terrorize their children that brings up your own childhood abuse that's big and i want you to get some support in that but yeah you need to tell debbie i can't have my kids around you anymore um Mm -hmm. it's because they're terrified of you and i have seen you do this repeatedly i know this is something you do i believe my kids and i've seen it myself you scream at your children over really small typical kid things and i want you to stop it makes me so sad to see you do it it scares my kids. I believe it scares your kids. I'm I, not impressed. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it makes you a, a cool mom in control. Yep. I don't think it, it, it like martyrs you and makes you interesting. Yeah. What, why are you doing this to literally the most vulnerable people in your life? Yeah. And You don't have to ask that last one. Yeah. But like if, if you need help dealing with your anger in such a way or, or, or getting help so that you're not so overwhelmed that this is the choice you make about what to do with your feelings, I want you to get that. But this needs to stop. You need to stop this. Mm-hmm. And I think to really frame that as like this is a choice that she makes. It's not a natural result of being overwhelmed. Yeah, she, she doesn't yell at you whenever you drop a you know, a yeah. napkin on the floor or something, does she? Yeah, I bet she doesn't yell at her boss. Mm-hmm. I bet she doesn't yell at cops. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I think one of the things that sometimes people who are on the outside of a sort of abusive situation can buy into is like, it's just because they're overworked or overwhelmed or don't have the help to manage their emotions that the rest of us do. And if only they could have that, they wouldn't do this. But uh, again, I think based on the fact that she only does this to tiny vulnerable people who can't fight back tells you she's choosing to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Debbie absolutely knows that the whole room went quiet and was paying attention to her. Yeah. Debbie knows. Yeah. She noticed that. Um, and it, to her, that was uh, cons- like consensus. It's OK. All we're going to do is look at you askance. We're not going to say anything. We're not going to leave. We're not going to check in on your kids and say like reprimand you in any way. We're going to let you get away with it. And I, I don't say that to say like, so it's your fault. I just mean like she noticed that and what she got out of that moment was I can keep doing this mm-hmm. and she needs to not have that from you anymore she needs to not think she has your tacit approval of the way she abuses her kids and I think it's important for you to say this is abusive I think it's really important for you to say that um, and again if you need to do this somewhere where you can get away really quickly or where you have a friend on hand because you feel unsafe I want you to have that if you need to say this over the phone because you feel like if she starts yelling at me in person I'll fall apart mm-hmm. you know do what you have to do but have that conversation with her and say those words 
Yeah. If if you if you have less control over your immediate circumstances and you end up in a situation with her, maybe with other people or mutual friends or maybe your kids are in school together or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I would encourage you personally if, to start practicing saying that's enough. Yeah. Calmly as you can, but firmly as you can. Yeah. You don't have to respond in kind. You can just say that's enough. Yeah. And I got to tell you, I think it would mean so much to those kids Again, not that this would fix it for them, but for them to grow up thinking every time our mom does this in public, it just, I guess it's normal. I guess it's fine. I guess nobody cares that she does this to us. For them to have even just once or twice remember another adult stepped in and said this is not okay Mm -hmm. will mean so much in terms of like helping them eventually come to understanding this as like, I don't deserve this. Mm -hmm. This isn't the natural response to me as a kid. Mm -hmm. Um, those kids need you right now. And so, again, please don't say to Debbie, I know you love your kids. I don't care if she loves her kids. Maybe she does and maybe she doesn't. That's really not the issue. doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, the problem is that she chooses to abuse them. And I think whenever we can remind ourselves that abuse is a choice that somebody makes, it makes it a lot easier to clearly identify what the problem is. Because um, it's not that she loves them, but she's confused. And it's not that she loves them, but she's so overwhelmed. There's nothing to do but scream. Um she screams at her kids. She does it in public. She does it in private. She may be physically violent with them in private if she's willing to scream at them in public. Um, she may not be physically violent with them, but she's perfectly willing to slam doors or throw dishes or demonstrate in some way, I'm bigger and stronger than you and I can damage your things um, and I will damage you if you act up. This is, as far as we know, this is the tip of the iceberg. Please keep us updated. I Please. really want to hear about how this goes. And I really hope you say something. And I hope you say it soon. And I hope you say something to your other friends. Like, mm-hmm. uh, not in the sense of, like, go around and turn everyone in the world against Debbie. But my God, if, if you know, if you have other parents in common, then you've noticed this. Say to them, like, I, I've noticed this about Debbie and I'm ashamed that I haven't said anything sooner. But I need to and I'm scared. Have you noticed it too? Does it worry you too? Um, I, my guess, my hope would be that the other people in her life are also concerned letter writer the worst thing that could happen to you is that debbie stops being friends with you Mm -hmm. and shuts you out of any information about what's happening to her children uh which would probably make you feel like you can't help them anymore Mm -hmm. and i realize that that is probably really scary and you're afraid of doing something that would cause that to happen yeah but um this is not your fault you can only do good yeah her actions are her actions yeah Yeah, and somebody needs to say this to her because it just doesn't sound like anybody has. Um, Yeah, keep us updated. I really want to know what happens next. I'm so worried about everyone today. I am too. Yeah, no, and the the last two are also uh, concerning. But again, I I think the good thing is we do have uh, specific things that we can suggest that they do. And that's that's not always the case. So I'm really grateful for that. So the subject of this next letter is, in case of emergency, do what? Do you want to read this or should I read this? I do. That's, sorry, I was reading it, which is why I was Oh, I'm sorry. Title. No, I'm sorry. You're wonderful. You're the greatest. No, you're the, the greatest. Guests. What? <laughs> I will read. Uh, I will continue reading this particular letter and we can praise one another later. Dear Prudence, I've recently had some suicidal feelings as a side effect of a medication I'm on. I see a therapist weekly. And while she wouldn't let me leave a visit if she felt like I was about to act on my feelings, I also realized that I cannot call her if I feel suicidal. She has said that I should talk to my boyfriend, who in the past hasn't realized just how bad I feel even when I've used the word suicidal, so I don't consider him any sort of support. How this ends up is another issue. 
basically aside from checking myself into a hospital and being put in a situation where they'll keep me on a 48-hour hold, I realize I don't have a support system. I have no close friends I can reach out to. In the past, I think I've lost friends because of my depression and the feeling that I might have burdened them too much. My family is the reason that I am depressed. I'm the only person in my family who has ever been in therapy, which they think is a defect on my part because they don't want to ever talk about anything, much less process it. They're all depressed too, but think that's just how life is supposed to be. Please tell me what is a person with a job supposed to do so they won't get put on a 48-hour hold so that they can keep their job and not have to explain themselves to everyone around them why they weren't at work. Sorry, this sentence was worded a little confusingly, but basically they're just like, what is someone in my position supposed to do if I feel suicidal? I've changed the medication that was dipping me into the suicidal zone, but like I said, my therapist hasn't given me any real options other than the psych ward. Should I find someone who puts in on-call for emergencies? Is there even such a thing? So a couple of things. One is like, you know, there's always the national suicide hotline in terms of just like, I want to call someone and know that I won't be put on a hold at the end of it. Um, That is not, I think, going to be like a regular, reliable source of ongoing support for you. But like just in an absolute pinch, you know, call the national suicide hotline. Um, You will at least be able to talk to somebody. There's somebody there 24 hours a day. It's 1-800-273-8255. And in addition to just being able to kind of talk you through like, hey, I need somebody on the other end of the phone for the next five minutes so that I don't, you know, do anything to harm myself. They might also be able to like put you in touch with more resources in your area. Um, But in addition to that, um, you say that you have a therapist and that you've been on medication. I assume either you've been getting that medication from a doctor or the therapist you've been seeing is some sort of psychiatrist because therapists uh, cannot prescribe medication. So if you got this medication from a doctor, I would also talk to your doctor and say, in the short term, as I come off of this medication, um, what, if anything, do you recommend for dealing with the lingering side effects? Because your doctor should have a should be able to say, like, here is what we prescribe for patients who are trying to come off of medication where the side effect is suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you know, you can stress to your doctor, like, how would you treat this? Not, I, I, I'm about to harm myself. Like, word it in such a way that you know will not get you put in that hold. But ask that doctor for um, what, if anything, they would recommend. Right? I, yes. Yeah. Um, I wonder if um, I'm getting the impression that you see, like, a private practice because uh, it sounds very much like, um, you know, you see your therapist and, and there's no like office or clinic around that right. that worker to to also field things. Yeah. So I'm getting that impression. I don't know if that's true, but um, you might want to see uh, you, you might want to see like multiple people. It's not like you've maxed out on therapy and doctor because you have one primary care and one person that you see for individual therapy. You you may live in a area that has um, community health options, uh, support group, um, and 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 those can come in all shapes and sizes. There are sorts of there are support groups where people get together and they work on tools for how to diffuse uh, themselves, mm-hmm. and then nobody acknowledges that they know each other outside of the support group, and you never talk about it. And you can't be friends outside the support group. and the, So those kinds of things. Yeah. And would you recommend for that, like, just, like, Googling, like, support groups and then the name of your city? Would you recommend going through, like, the the health services department? Would you recommend um, asking your therapist for tips? Or it sounds like that might be kind of a dead end. Yeah. Um, your doctor or your therapist might be able to even give you a referral. Sometimes you have to be in individual therapy to get into these groups. Sometimes uh-huh. you don't. Um, y- you can... 
I know this sounds like bonkers, but you can see multiple therapists. You yeah. can keep your therapist and then also see somebody who does do crisis hotline stuff. Yeah. You can call you can call these hotlines. You I know you feel very alone and in some ways you're stuck in a loop where the things that have isolated you, you know, are also made worse by isolation, right? Mm-hmm. Um I'm leaving your the issue of your boyfriend off the table for a second because it sounds like you kind of know you kind of know that's a can of worms so we're gonna leave that alone um i would also you have a job you have some stuff i would work very gently with yourself on making some friends Hmm. and um whatever has happened in the past maybe you kind of dumped too fast maybe you asked too much too quickly maybe you did more talking than listening and you you're at a point where you're like oh like you know that friendships in the past have been strained by this um i'm not saying that you're gonna find a new best friend tomorrow but i am saying um do fun stuff that gets your mind do keep busy even if you're actually just like low-key grumpy about it um and try to just like make casual social connections because Mm -hmm. i i'm what i'm not saying what i'm not saying is that these are going to be the people that you can call Mm -hmm. but i am saying that feeling like or actually having no friends Mm -hmm. is not a thing that can come later after you've got a support network set up you kind of have to address it holistically And I think if nothing else, it will serve as a form of distraction. And distraction is a tool. Yes. With, um, especially medication-induced suicidal thoughts. Mm-hmm. Distraction can be really good. Distraction's great. Stay alive out of spite, if nothing yeah. else, please. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and also, you may have um, a, a lot of larger companies have employee assistance programs that can mm-hmm. include mental health services. Um, and again, you, you can always, uh, hopefully it's a larger company and you have like a big anonymous HR website that details all of the options available to you. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, they have to be confidential. Um, so, and again, I want to be really careful, like always do your best to watch what you're saying. You know best what you need to avoid saying in order not to be placed on a hold. Um, but generally speaking, like accessing your EAP is going to be confidential. And that may be another um, resource that you haven't yet exercised. Um, again, a little bit in the long term, I don't know if you live with your family. You do say that you have a job, so I'm hopeful that you're at least somewhat financially independent. If you need to cut way back on your contact with your family, up to and including zero contact, I want you to give yourself a lot of permission to do that. That may not feel like something you can do right now if you're just like, I I can't make any big changes. I just need Mm -hmm. to like make it through the next hour on the hour. Mm -hmm. I get that. But um, I want to give you permission either now or later when you're feeling a little bit more like centered or like you have a foundation for well-being um, to say that my family... um, actively increases my suicidal ideation and I need to not be in contact with them as a result, that is great. Don't don't force yourself to. Every little thing you do to stay alive and take care of yourself every single day counts. You don't have to fix yourself on any, like you don't have to fix yourself, period. Mm-hmm. You don't have to feel better tomorrow. Um, you haven't failed. So I also want to emphasize that like a day that you're alive, despite the way you're feeling, even if everyone around you is clueless jerk yeah you did that yeah you did that and i really want to put some emphasis on that you know sometimes people be like oh you know this happens a lot with 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 artists who develop a cult of personality someone will tell you your music saved my life Mm -hmm. or you know they i got really into this when i was in a bad time um 
And uh, one of the best things I've ever heard when this was happening is a musician turned around and said, no, you did that. You saved your life. Yeah. Um, I know that's kind of like a weird tangential illustration of that, but I really want to emphasize that you have so much more power than you feel like, yeah. and you're not alone. And I hope, I hope that all the resources that are available to you come easily and swiftly. Yeah. Good luck. And I, I also hope that um, the fact that you've changed the medication means that you may already, since you have written me this letter, be finding that these are diminishing um, or becoming less severe. I hope that the change in medication addressed a lot of the immediate crisis points um, and that you will be able to focus more on slightly more medium and long-term stuff like potentially leaving your boyfriend um, or at least, you know, I mean, again, if you feel like you have no friends and you're about to cut off your family and you're like, actually, I'm happy to stick with like a kind of subpar boyfriend for the next six months to a year until I can address the rest of this stuff, that's fine too. Like if you're just sort of doing emotional triage and saying, basically, I expect very limited things from my boyfriend. And as long as I don't consider him a main source of emotional support, I still get enough out of that regular contact that this is okay for me. Do that by all means. You know, mm -hmm. we're, we're just trying to keep you here from day to day. And I'm so glad that you wrote. I hope that the um, hotline proves helpful to you, even just to know, like, if it's two in the morning and there's no one else to call, I can call this and somebody who doesn't know me will pick up the phone and we can talk. Um, Whatever you need to yeah. keep you in this side of the world um, is completely fine. I'm, Whatever yeah. it takes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, short of harming other people, which I don't think is on the table here. I always just want to be like, yeah, that's not what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, basically, like, you do what you got to do. Um, and, and, you know, more than any of the other letters, I really hope you keep us posted. Please. Yes. I want good things for you. Okay. Last question. I'm really excited that we had time to get to this because I know you mentioned that this is one that you felt like uniquely suited to address. I don't know if I feel uniquely suited, but I feel a deep resonance with this last one. Gotcha. Okay. So here we go. I think it's my turn to read it, even though you have all the resonance. No, please go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, Phil is just like pointing away from me. Um, you've got the resonance. You should read this letter. <laughs> uh, Phil doesn't usually tell me what to do. So when he does, I, I take it seriously. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Subject. Zebra medically unsure legally. Dear Prudence, I'm a trans guy who, due to going through a disability claim, can't change my name or gender marker legally yet. All of my medical documents require what I refer to as my maiden name for insurance purposes but all patient interactions use my real name. The problem comes when a doctor's office calls up to confirm an appointment or ask a question. They inevitably deadname me. It's my reaction I'm unsure about. I'm on the autism spectrum, have complex epilepsy from brain damage, resulting from abuse by another student in elementary school, and major PTSD from a number of sources, including doctors telling me I was psychosomatic. One asked me, why I started to cry after reading from a medical journal about it in front of me. Another tried to prescribe me a med I had told her repeatedly I'd had bad reactions to in the past. And I'm not always a good judge on what's socially acceptable or even what I should put up with. I also struggle with self-confidence, which can also lead to overblown reactions when I feel attacked. I don't scream. I'm not violent. I just get vindictive and intolerant. For example, my first urge is to snap off at someone who I presume is singling me out for poor treatment despite the risk of retaliation. When I have these reactions, I'm sometimes told that it's inappropriate or I can't risk alienating a doctor's office in that in all other ways treats me with the utmost respect, even apologizing each time over the phone and then mostly using my correct name in the waiting room. Is this discrimination? How do I practice self-care by sticking up for myself without burning bridges to the few medical offices who actually understand my medical issues. 
<sighs> yeah, we just both had the same like, oh, baby. Oh, man. Um, I'll say as somebody who also has not yet changed his name legally for a variety of reasons, but that is on my radar. Um, I've had a number of different um, like medical reactions to it. And my understanding at least is like, uh, if I have a prescription, they do have to use my legal name on it, but they're often able to like over that or or in parentheses put my actual name. Um, but if it's just like um, the like front of this front office staff calling you to set up an appointment, there's no reason that they should need to use your legal name or dead name or whatever. Um. So right, actually. It could be that um, they are mandated or have some kind of inflexible system wherein they are required. Maybe it's a robocall, right? Maybe it's a receptionist who's just going down the line or maybe you're getting a robocall. Um, And it's probably going with the name that's on your insurance, which is this, in this case, you call your dead name. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say, first the bad news. First the bad news, letter writer. I I did change my name legally years ago. And I still run into this problem. Mm. I just want to give you the heads up that that problem doesn't go away when you change your name. Mm. Because uh, for bizarre reasons, even though people change their names all the time for all kinds of reasons, no system is set up to change a simple line of text. It's like we we have all this data, mm-hmm. this personal data floating around in all these big systems, and they can't update a text field. <laughs> they can't. It's, it's bonkers. So I still run into issues um, where uh, my old name is uh, is is just announced over like a PA or or left on my voicemail by a robot or inserted into, you know, a mailing list uh, greeting or something like that. That's the bad news mm. is that this doesn't go away. Um, so if in, in, a, in kind of a nice way, I, I want you to sort of like don't don't feel like um, who you are because you have a really good logistical reason for not changing your name Mm -hmm. and i don't want you to beat yourself up or feel like you're doing it wrong you're like oh if i could only fix this all my all my conflict would go away that that might not be the case you could change you could change your name and you could just this could just like continue sort of good news bad news news, you're not causing this by waiting on the name change you're not the name change won't also solve this problem entirely yes and so i'm telling you that informationally and also as a way of saying that the real question here is how do we cope with this inevitable nonsense right um which i i wish it wasn't inevitable but like yeah, I've been there. Yeah. And it's also hard when you've experienced, like, you've had really bad encounters with doctors and medical oh providers on a number of scales, right? Like, by virtue of being trans, by virtue of being on the spectrum, by virtue of, like, your complex PTSD and your epilepsy, like, all of that, they, they sound like really painful and upsetting incidents that, of course, are going to just color any other, even otherwise neutral incidents now. Um, so it, it makes a lot of sense that you feel really sensitive. And and I mostly just want to say, I not that that's like a solution, just I get it. It makes sense. I, I would feel the same way in your position. Um, I think the reaction that you have is very understandable. I've been in your position and I've felt this. Mm-hmm. And I don't know you, letter writer, but um, uh, more than one detail of your letter is true for me as well. Mm-hmm. And I am just going to say that um, <sighs> you are doing the right thing in the part of you that is like repeatedly stating your needs and saying no mm-hmm. and um you know telling doctors that they're not listening to you that is so good keep yeah. doing that yeah yelling at receptionists not so much yeah um and this is not an either or 
Right. You can advocate for yourself and manage these relationships. Mm-hmm. You can have both. Do you think it would be helpful to ask for clarity from the front office staff of, is there a legal reason why you would ever need to call me or contact me or say that it's time for my appointment by my birth name? Can you give me some clarity on like your legal responsibilities there? Because that way I think you'll at least know if they say like, oh, no, we're just trying. You can maybe stress a little harder. Like it's important to me that you not be inconsistent about this. Mm -hmm. Um, And if they say for the following legal reasons, under the following circumstances, we do have to use that name. At least then you can kind of prepare yourself for I know the reasons in which their hand. I know the circumstances under which their hands will be tied. And I know when it has to happen versus when it's just that they're not trying. Mm hmm. So that might be a, a step forward. And, and I don't know if you feel like you do better when you have those conversations in person or if you feel like you do better over the phone or if you do better over email. Um, I might try to do it over email. Uh, you do lose the kind of like in-person effect of saying like, this is me, this is my face. You have to pay attention to me. But you have the added ability of being able to choose your words, car- words carefully and you have a written record. So whatever way feels best to you to just say, I I, I really want to understand the situation because so far it's been really inconsistent. What I'd like to know is, is there ever a legal reason for you to have to use my birth name um, when you call me at home, um, when you contact me about appointments or when you call my name when I'm in the waiting room? Mm -hmm. And depending on their answer, you can say, it's really important to me um, that my name not be used interchangeably or inconsistently unless you have to do it legally. What can we do to make sure that this stops being so inconsistent? And that that's kind of like cheesy middle management language um, I think can be useful in like you're making it clear this is going to happen. I'm mm-hmm. not asking you for it. I need to know what we need to do as a medical team to fix this. Yeah. And um I love your indignant energy. Please uh, hold tight to that and use it to channel all the strongly worded letters that you need. Um, if you just feel so mad and you really want to do something, not just for yourself, but you sort of just feel like the unfairness of the situation is grating, um, you can you like don't have to stop feeling that way. Yeah. You can direct that energy away from, you know, probably a service worker making not that much money who's probably just running a desk and like talking to a ton of people throughout the day a ton of people who all have problems yeah which is a thing to keep in mind about care workers you're in pain um direct care and administrative people who work in these kinds of direct care situations are absorbing verbal abuse like most of their job yeah and so you can you can sort of take that moment to appreciate that like they don't they're not trying to be callously tuning you out. They're trying to stay focused on the job that they're there to do. And sometimes they're jerks and uh, other times they, you know, can be reasoned with. And so one thing that you can do is um, work within whatever rules they've got. Um, In my community health care clinic, I, um, you know, within the setting of uh, a private meeting with somebody caring for me, I was like, this is ridiculous that you don't have like preferred name first names especially as like an option yeah i was like look at all the different people who come to this clinic who could use that lots of people you know they have names that are legal names and they have names that they use at work or at school or with friends for a variety of reasons it's not just trans people Mm -hmm. so you i always like using that because it's like even if you don't like me and you think i'm like an irritating trans person yeah don't worry i got other people who i I fall under the umbrella of exactly um and like 
you know, you can make a case for them to make it in their interest to uh, make a text field editable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I would say all of that. The other thing is like, um, I understand that part of what feels hard about this is you sometimes feel like you're being told by other people that you're having the wrong response. Right. Um, and that makes you doubt yourself. And I'll just say, while I also don't want you to like snap at or be cruel to a receptionist, um, I, I also, I'm sorry someone said that you can't risk alienating a doctor's office because the implied threat there They're is, threatening you. Yeah. yeah, if if you're not sufficiently polite and deferential towards us, we will withhold your medical care or, uh, you know, mistreat you or misdiagnose mm-hmm. you or, or retaliate in some way that would affect your health and your well-being. And that is so not okay and, and would in fact be, uh, you know... That's that that feels actually like if someone has actually said that to you, mm-hmm. um, that's worth like clarifying. Are you threatening to withhold medical care? Yeah. Um, and and I would encourage you to to find the find the gray area of of this reality, which is that it, is society systemically transphobic? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Including your doctor's office mm-hmm. has has down to the software they design and the fact that like they have to check off male or female and yeah. they have to have, they have to keep a birth name and make certain assumptions that go with it. Yeah. You know, yep, that yeah. you're right. That's like in the most general sense of the term that's discrimination. Yeah. It's everywhere. It's in yeah. the air we breathe. And it's set and up- also you have to be nice to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, and it's also set up to make life more difficult for neuroatypical people mm-hmm. um, and for people who are dealing with like complex PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, you're you're facing a lot of discrimination and, you know, just just a lack of generosity on a number of fronts. Um, I'm glad that in other ways you feel like they treat you respectfully. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that there are ways in which you sometimes feel listened to. I hope you no longer see the doctor who asked you why you were crying when they were reading psychosomatic, like, diagnoses to which you out like, of a textbook. Which is like, what is what is that? Yeah, yeah. right? Ugh. I mean, that's like the emotional equivalent of stop hitting yourself. Like, uh-huh. I'm crying because you're trying to make me cry. It's all in your head, you silly little thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, no. Um, I really hope that's not a doctor that you are still working with or or the one who tried to prescribe you the medication that you, they know you can't take. People probably try to undermine the reality of your feelings all the time. Yeah. Uh, partly because you're trans, partly because you're on the spectrum, partly because you have trauma. Um, so your feelings, people get to tell you all the time, your feelings aren't real. Yeah. Um, you can't really be trans. This is just your weird trauma and autism. Oh, nope, you can't really be traumatized. This is just your... You're just weird too trans thing. You're just like a crazy trans person, you mm. sensitive weirdo. All of your problems cause each other, and we're not going to legitimize any of them. So I do want to emphasize um, your feelings are real. There's no such thing as an oversized feeling. There's only what you do with it. Yeah. You can have the biggest mood in the world, and it's your mood. Yeah. It's how you behave that matters. It really is. Um, there's no such thing as being too sensitive on the inside right um and so probably people are trying to tell you that like you have to feel less you don't you just have to behave differently you need to find whatever tools you can get to take those feelings and do something that's going to protect you mm-hmm. and that s- is ultimately the goal and stay pissed yeah i love you yeah letter writer yeah i hope you get so much support in other areas of your life um and in general i think uh, it's just really good to remind yourself like your feelings are not a problem. It's always good to make sure that you're not um, inappropriately trying to punish somebody um, or screaming or, or using language that like, you know, threatens them. But short of that, as long as you're behaving, you know, uh, with kind of the general respect that everybody gets, it is really OK for you to say this needs to change. I don't like this. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and and maybe even look for another doctor's office at some point mm-hmm. um, if you feel like this is just a dead end. Also, in case you didn't know this, there's a lot of people who fall under the description that you gave us of yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh I hope you find some other trans autistic friends dealing with stuff. Yeah. There are a lot of people who would self-describe themselves that way. Yeah. And maybe they have some tools and some tips. Yeah. Yeah. It's also a pretty cool group of people. It's pretty good. Yeah. Would recommend. Yeah. Well, Julian, thank you so much for swimming through this wave pool of problems. (laughs) There was a lot going on and I kind of wish we could go to the moon now. Wow. Just like zone out for a little while. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Danny, for having me on the show. Of course. So, so much. This is such a blast. Yeah. I'm having so many things uh, <laughs> in my own big feelings. I'm having the biggest mood of all. Yep. So Moon sounds great. Fantastic. See you there. Great. Um, let's. I'll see you shortly uh, after this and we can eat more rice. All right. Great. Awesome. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds. A minute tops. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.